welcome to the Theology Pugcast. It's uh, really great to be with you, and uh, it's just us chickens today. We've had all these guests on for the last month and a half or so, and so it just feels a little weird uh, just <laughs> having the three of us in the room. But we're going to have a good time talking about stuff. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest and a church right outside of Portland, Oregon. People uh, are astonished when they learn that. <laughs> but actually, the town that I serve, the church I serve, and the town that I'm in is perhaps one of the most conservative places in America. Again, that strikes people as pretty odd, but... Anyway, well, I've written some books. right next to Portland, I can understand why conservatism <laughs> would be attractive. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, is that we keep getting these people who are fleeing Portland, and they just aren't bright enough to know that they should leave their politics behind. They bring it <laughs> with them. <laughs> anyway, I've written some books. My latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil. But anyway, Glenn, tell us about yourself. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired professor of Reformation history at Central Connecticut State University. Currently, I'm a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Okay, Tom, introduce yourself and tell us what we're talking about today because it's your day. Take it away. All right. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy. Um, one of the places I teach is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Today's topic is, well, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a variety of topics within a topic. <laughs> and since it is, it's almost Christmas for yeah. our audience. Um, so uh, a happy Christmas to you if we, if we uh, don't get to you before that. And, um, and so it will be a Christmas-themed um, topic. And so I want to hone in on incarnation again. Um, but I also want to relate incarnation to the theme of joy. I want to relate incarnation to the theme of music. And I want to relate incarnation to the theme of heaven and earth. Um, I, think, I think we can hover around all those under the, under the theme of incarnation. Um, and so maybe that's a, a good way in. So I think the text that I was thinking about um, riffing off of a little is right out of Luke, uh, the, you know, Luke's gospel, when, uh, the shepherds and the angels. And I think there, there is a, there's a lot of wonder that is in that text. Every time I read it, especially during this time of year, uh, certain things jump out at me that uh, that's recapture the imagination, I think, and also stir that sense of wonder that you get when you're preparing for spiritually um, the the events of this season. Um, so I, I'll just kind of uh, read a little bit of of the familiar text um, on verse eight. It says, "And in the region where there were shepherds out in the field." Now, at this in this text, I don't think there's anything more earthly you can be doing at that moment. We're we're definitely on the earth scene here. They're keeping watch over their flock by night, so they're carrying out their day to day duties about as earthly as you get. And then all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears. So right here in the midst of the everyday and the earthly, the heavenly breaks through, um, appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shines about them. And what was their first response? Well, this is probably what you would expect, fear, <laughs> right? Um, fear when heaven confronts earth at this moment. And we can, in a little while, talk about why that would probably be our first reaction. Um, and the angel said to them, fear not, and behold, I bring you good news, and here's, here's one of our themes, of great joy. 
that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. And this will be a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So here's a very earthly reality connecting heaven and earth. And what is the follow-up? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And one could say singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. So there is the, there are all those themes wrapped right up into this this uh, this little text here. So maybe it's good to just start with the ordinary. Um, that's sort of where we are, and kind of play out some of this and and some of the wonder and theological ramifications. So one is we're dealing with ordinary events and an extraordinary time beginning to penetrate it. Um, shepherds and angels. Yeah, I think what comes to my mind immediately is the notion that that perhaps uh, there are things going on around us all the time that we have uh, we lack the equipment to to see, uh, and then there is a kind of uh, well pulling back of the shroud, and an apocalypse occurs. We uh, have an unveiling. That's that's one way to think about this. Another way to think about this is that okay. That's not the case where we are. Uh, it's just ordinary all the way through. <laughs> yeah. And then there is something that uh, descends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that, uh, you know, when, as, we're, as we're thinking about that, it, there's something from the outside coming in that isn't normally a part of it. Now, maybe both those things could be true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I can live with either. I'm, I'm not like a, a partisan. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking about what are the possibilities. Those seem to be yeah. two. Uh, maybe there are possibilities that I've not, I've not thought about. Well, one of the things that's worth noting is that the shepherds around Bethlehem were in all likelihood Levites. Mm-hmm. And because Bethlehem is so close to Jerusalem, the sheep that they were tending were intended for sacrifice. Hmm. And this, so what would happen is when a ewe was going to give birth, there were caves that were set apart for this. And these were ritually clean caves um, that they would go into. And when the, the lamb was born, they would inspect the lamb. And if it was without blemish, in other words, suitable for sacrifice, they actually had cloth in there that they would swaddle the lamb in it so that it didn't injure itself and mar itself and make itself unable uh, and ineligible for sacrifice. That's the context in which we're talking about with, with what's going on in Bethlehem here. Yeah, and I think it's very plausible uh, knowing what we know about the area. You know, uh, that's not usually the way this is at all interpreted or presented. You know, if you if you think about your typical Christmas play with all the kids dressed up in robes and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, the shepherds always come across as these yahoos out in the wilderness who uh, kind of uncultured and, you know, uh, kind of scruffy. And uh, Levites saying that, okay, these, you know, that these may be Levites and that the sheep that are being cared for are not just you know, mutton chops for, and, and sources <laughs> of wool, but yeah. uh, we're talking about dedicated to the worship of God in the temple. 
that puts a whole different frame of reference on this uh, and I think is helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, if, can we can we say this without um, equivocation? Uh, I don't think so, but we can say it's highly likely that that's what the case was. Yeah, well, we do know that the, that the, the sheep that were raised there were, you know, because of its proximity to, to Jerusalem, uh, they were, in fact, being raised for sacrifice. We do know that much. Um, I think that this actually puts the rest of the Christmas story in a rather interesting perspective as well. Um, it's rightly been pointed out that there was no room for them at the inn. The word inn doesn't mean, it can mean inn, but in almost low, in this context, it almost certainly does not. It's the same room that's used for the upper room later on in Luke. Um, it it was a, a chamber that was built on the top of houses um, for guests uh, frequently as a bridal chamber, those sorts of things. The fact that Joseph and Mary, nine months pregnant, get there and the inn is in the the upper room is in use, and Mary about to give birth doesn't trump the people who are there. <laughs> um, that suggests to me that there was some sort of scandal surrounding Mary and her birth, which would be understandable, which is why they didn't get in the upper room and they had to go look someplace else to stay. Now, some people who point out this upper room thing will say that, well, they were just downstairs. I don't think so. Hmm. I think they went to the birthing caves because... Past where Tom read, the angels yeah. are told there's going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying yeah. in a manger. Yeah. If these are Levitical priests or yeah. the Levitical shepherds, yeah. the first thing that's going to come to their mind is the birthing caves. That's where you find a manger, and that's where you're going to swaddle a baby. Yeah, yeah, those are great, great uh, connections. And I and I think that oh I mean I think that answers some of what you were talking about, Chris. The fact that this isn't you know I was using the term ordinary on purpose. This is an ordinary time. There there are no fully ordinary times, right? They're they're all related to heaven in some way, but this is distinctly related to heaven and its purposes. And so the redemptive historical side and the the eternal purpose side are coming into into the fullness of time is I think the the scriptural language there right. and and then uh, coupled there you, you've talked about sort of the redemptive waiting and of course there's the shepherd and the you know the sheep as well and this is going to become a very strong um, term used of Christ you know the good shepherd the one who lays itself down for the sheep and and the like but then you also have in Matthew two um, once Jesus was born of course in Bethlehem. That the that you have the the kind of wise men or that the, you know who saw his star in the east and who have now come to worship him and I think we've talked about this other years but there is another aspect I think that is is something that is wondrous about this 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 notion of the heavens the cosmos um, which a lot of these kind of uh, whether you're Zoroastrian or or you know Hellenic you know, looking for the ordering in the cosmos or, or Mithra or, or different religions were always looking for signs in the heavens. And they here talk about this star in the east and they wanted to come and worship him. So there is something in, in all of their distorted orientation away from the true God that was also a creation, a star that was pointing to the true God and the true Messiah. 
And I don't think theologically I've heard really a lot of good explanations of that connection. Um, yeah, I've heard, I've heard people uh, kind of ruminate on the origin of the Magi coming from the East and uh, Babylon and the notion that there might have been some kind of residual knowledge that, uh, you know, remained there from the, the time when the Jews were in exile there. And, of course, there were Jewish communities all yeah. over the world, including them there, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, but I've always been intrigued by the process or sort of the possibilities for, I guess, uh, evangelistic uh, encounters with people um, outside of the of the Christian faith that uh, draw on sort of these odd features in the different, you know, religious systems or whatever. And what you have here is people, as far as we can tell, who are, are not Jews uh, and are simply pursuing their studies uh, in light of their own interests. And they say, well, what do you know? Look at there. <laughs> 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 that, 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 that's indicating that there's a, there's a new king. Uh, the Jews have a new king. <laughs> you know? And so yeah. they say, well, let's go and visit the guy. <laughs> and so, uh, it makes it makes uh, it's just a, a fascinating thing. Uh, sometimes, you know, people feel that I think discomfort at the prospect that I mean, here are these. I mean, they're magicians for goodness sakes. It's <laughs> 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 a magi means, and uh, and yeah. they're they're onto something, and and they're not they're not wrong. I mean, they're actually onto something that that's right. Yeah, there's there's a wonderful video, I think it's just called The Star of Bethlehem, where somebody has actually used computer programs and placed himself at different places and tracked what was going on with the planets and, and the stars and makes a very, very credible argument in the video for what happened and when it happened and everything else um, and why they would have reacted the way they did. Now, he thinks that the Magi were actually Jews. I don't, because one of the big themes in Matthew is the Gentiles coming to Christ. We usually think of Matthew as a gospel for the Jews, but if you read through it carefully, you're going to see references to Gentiles all over the place, including in Jesus's own genealogy. Yeah, I, I'm, I've seen the the video you, or the documentary you're talking about, and it's very good, and, and I, yeah. it does come at it from an angle that I think uh, is unusual uh, and people wouldn't sort of think of. Yeah, and and again, it, it takes us back to Psalm 19, where where um, uh, the the universe itself is speaking. It, it's declaring knowledge. It's giving giving information, and so on. And while we would reject astrology overall, uh, it seems that in this case, and actually at the crucifixion, if you look at the uh, the extras on that DVD. Um, it seems that the heavens were really speaking yeah, in yeah. some pretty profound and powerful ways. Yeah. Well, I guess the thing that to consider in all of this, knowing that there are a range of opinions and convictions about this and how difficult it is to sort of narrow in and say, this is the, definitely the, the right way to the think right about way it. To think, yeah. yeah. That, that um, I think it sort of brings to the surface uh, you know, sort of our our our, our thoughts that, about just how much God does speak through the created order. So, 
there are some folks who have a very, kind of a minimalist view, almost as though they kind of begrudgingly, you know, sort of concede, well, yeah, yeah, you I mean, it's evident that there is a God. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, let's get to some scripture. Uh, yeah. And then you get the other extreme where, you know, the idea is that everything we need to know can be known just by observation and, mm-hmm. and through reflection and so forth. And, and so kind of figuring out uh, how to keep that all together is, is a challenge. I tend to be, as probably listeners aren't surprised to learn, uh, someone who's very uh, kind of strong on natural revelation. But I don't think of it as a, a, at war or at odds with Scripture at all. I, I think of it as, as something that's in, it's in harmony with it. But anyway... Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree personally with that. Um, and I would add that this isn't saying that through natural revelation or general revelation, you can get to the message of salvation. You can't. Right. You need scripture for that. But that doesn't mean the natural revelation isn't occurring. Yeah. Right. right. And, and I think it, it all comes down to what one means by natural theology, natural revelation, and natural law. And I think a lot of people think if you affirm them, you mean something similar to the kind that, that grew up leading to the Enlightenment, you know, that it was this autonomous sphere that had its own kind of intrinsic intelligibility apart from um, the transcendent uh, God who is the source of all things and, and somehow had a kind of fulfillment that could uh, be almost as good um, if you didn't go all the way and take the fulfillment that was in, in Christ. And that's that's not what, you know, I think any of us hold. We hold much more of the classic view that what we're talking about is God's stamp on things and that he is the governor. Calvin will say it clear, clear as day. He's the governor. It's a gift of governance that he gives to all things in all times. And so there, there is something that even in our fallen condition, it's the goodness of the creator sustaining these things that continuously is attested through the fact that rain falls on the good and the bad every day. I mean, this shows something of the, of the, of the goodness of God and the, and the gift of God to where, to where even, even the rebellious uh, hater of God in some way still has God's uh, gifts showered upon them to where they're inexcusable for not receiving them with thanksgiving. Um, and, you know, they're not the source of that rain. Um, doesn't matter how many times they dance around the pole, they're not the ones causing it, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, they have to dance around to somehow, in their mind, trigger it, you know. Um, and, and you see this, I think, you know, I, I, and oh, the other side is, is I think that there are some versions of natural theology, natural revelation that assume that the fall hasn't really impacted things and that you can just kind of read, if you're just, you know, clear headed enough, you can just read all the things you need off the surface. And that, that I think uh, dismisses the kind of, I think what Boerisma was on to the kind of the way in which everything um, has its is suspended by the, the, the being of God and, and is held in place and has its intelligibility because of him. And so yeah, I think I think one of the things I'd love to get to though is this matter of joy. Yeah, because I, because I think that it's something that people it's a it's a term that people use a lot without really thinking. So when people say enjoy yourself, uh, they're more or less saying uh, do things that please <laughs> you, you know, yeah. or um, be happy. And what they mean by happy is a kind of I guess 
psych, sort of a psychological state of just, you know, upbeatness. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But what is it? What is it to that we're really talking about, or can we even fully talk about uh, joy? What is what is it? Well, I, I think um, I mean Matthew Arnold, the, the famous uh, poet, uh, wrote wrote of uh, one of his new poems. He called it "A Conquering Newborn Joy," which I think is a beautiful title. And I think in many ways that that is something about what Christian joy is. It's conquering in the sense that. You can, you can participate in it because you're not the source of it. So that even at a time when the world is, is crushing against goodness and righteousness, um, as you know, Christ before the cross, he can count it a joy to do the Father's will you know, in relation to all of that because it's a conquering joy. It's one that is not destroyed by the struggles of creation and sin and evil because it, it is from a source larger than that. But then the next part of it, it's a newborn joy in the sense that it's alien to us in the sense that it is it is the joy that is intrinsic to the nature of God. It is to know God is to know joy because joy is a name of God, right? It's it or we talk of God's eternal beatitude, right? Um, what state is God always in at the heart of God's fullness and perfection? It, it's joy. Um, and, and it's it's this beatitude, this self-giving and sharing of the triune love that is a perfect give and take. And, and it's really an eternal celebration of the being that God is. We were made for that, to be image bearers and, and to participate in creation. And actually, as embodied creatures, our senses are for the kind of creature we are, are such that they are a part of that way in which we can enjoy things. I mean, think of where the joys kind of take off for us, right? The, the joy of, of seeing something beautiful or, or tasting something delicious, um, the joy of fellowship together and that, you know, the, the pleasure of a good hug from a friend or loved one. I mean, these are things um, I think Christianity is starting to hint at, that the, every aspect of this is geared toward the kind of create, creature we're meant to be. So as we think about those examples that you've given uh, obviously, they're all very creaturely. Uh, yeah. they're, they're things that we can say, well, we can identify the biochemical yeah. processes of the brain that yeah. produce yeah. that feeling, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and we can, I think, too, say, well, there are different ways that we could consider these experiences uh, revelatory or correspondences to this, this thing you're talking about, the joy of God. Um, I tend to favor the idea that in some some way, even these physical processes, even the joy of a puppy when its wet tail is yeah. wagging as it's, as it's approaching you, <laughs> is in some sense participating in the joy of God in the yeah. in a doggy way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so we as human beings participate in the joy of God in a human way and in the fullest way, um, yeah. in ways that other creatures in our in our world can't uh, when we're really doing it right. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, and, and, you know, a lot of theologians will often talk about, you know, what, what gives birth to Christian song, right? Um, on the one hand, it's gratitude and that gratefulness of being delivered, you know, and in the, in the, you know, especially the Protestant world loves to, to focus on that, you know, have been delivered from sin and it's, it's the happiness and joy that, that, that freedom gives. 
Um, but I think that, you know, that's freedom from, uh, and it's, and then it's what it's really, then what, what is all this for? And that, that is entering that joy more fully. Um, I think that is our, that's our end, the end game is to increasingly be brought into the perfection of that joy, um, eternally. And so because of that, every little thing that creation exhibits of the happiness and joy of happiness and joy is a creaturely sharing in that which God is in the, you know, exemplary kind of way and a kind of way that we don't know merely by these joys only in a, in a kind of tasting. Um, and yeah. You, yeah. I think that what, what I, I guess one of the things I've seen in respect uh, to this matter is that some people think of the if kind of the embodied experiences uh, in the fullest range is almost an impediment. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think it's better to think of it as a mediation. Now, not a yeah. mediation of salvation necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but a mediation of some attribute, some aspect of the divine fullness. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes people will say something like, Listen to the glorious day. And they'll yes. say, well, it's, that's nothing compared to what we're going to enjoy in heaven. And it almost yeah, makes yeah. you feel like guilty for like enjoying the yeah. day. You know, they're almost yeah. like they're almost like trying to one up you. Well, yeah. you know, that's yeah. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as though we're yeah. supposed to go through life with that kind of uh, sardonic, uh, yeah. cynical uh, sort of sort of demeanor, de- sort of de- deflating everything we're, yeah. we're, are we supposed to be the cosmic killjoys the people who go around <laughs> saying well that's yeah. nothing that's yeah. nothing and that's nothing you know um I, I, when i'm I've, as i've been thinking about what you said a little bit earlier it reminded me of a, a guy that uh, lynn knew um when she was in college one summer she worked for the civilian conservation corps and one of the one of her fellow counselors was the one who was in charge of events, you know. And Merrill used to argue that children really don't know how to play because they don't have enough experience. Adults are the only ones who can really, really play well. <laughs> and, you know, in a sense, you know, the, the analogy is there's a kind of joy that human beings can have that is different in quality from the joy of the puppy because we understand and at least have the potential to understand and appreciate more of the world, more of God than that puppy can even begin to reach. Yeah. Yeah. I remember At the same talking- time though, there, there's a flip side of this. It also points to the fact that we can have greater sorrow than they yeah. do. Yeah. And so when we look ahead to the eschatological future, it's no accident that Scripture says that God will wipe away every tear from our eye. Because at that point, as it says in the Psalms, in your presence is fullness of joy. Yeah. At that point, when we are in God's presence, all of the sorrow and everything else will be transmuted into something else and the tears will be wiped away. But there is a fullness of joy that comes at that point. That which, is something that we can experience that other creatures can't. They can only do it to their capacity. We have a different capacity. Yeah, I, I, and I assume that we'll have an even greater capacity uh, when we're glorified. This reminds me of t- stuff I 
taught years ago uh, concerning Aristotle. Aristotle's, you know, the uh, the philosopher of happiness, you could say. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the yeah. one who talks about it the most. And he uh, he maintained that uh, that happiness and capacity go together, which implies, or it actually doesn't just imply, it means that some people can be happier than other people just because they're different. In other words, happiness isn't something that can be, but the, but the good part of it is, is if you don't, if you don't know what you're missing, you don't miss it. (laughs) So in other words, so a person with, with, and one of the ways I put it was like, imagine a four cylinder engine, uh, a six cylinder engine and an eight cylinder engine. So you know, the four cylinder engine has got a certain capacity for happiness. It's, you could call it, uh, you know, HP for happiness power <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to horsepower. But you've got the six cylinder engine. It's got a greater capacity. The eight cylinder engine has an even greater capacity. Now, each of those engines are churning away as happily as they can, as they can ch- kind of work. And, you know, Aristotle's thinking is that each of our potentialities have to be actualized for us to be happy. So if you're a, if you're a four cylinder guy, you're a one talent guy in the biblical mm-hmm. language and or, or a two talent guy for six cylinders or eight cylinders would be, a, you know, the, the the five talent guy. But the idea is that is that uh, that there really is a kind of kind of a, a sense in which things are not equal even though everybody can feel equally happy insofar as they're able to be happy. I'm maxing it out, baby, on the happiness scale, <laughs> or the joy scale, for that matter. Well, and it, it is interesting because you, you think of the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? I mean, most of us don't think of that as actualizing certain kind of potential, you know, potentials um, out of our own steam, and yet there is a way in which that, is preparatory for receiving of a, of, a, of a kind of fullness, right? What has been taken from somebody's ability to actualize a this worldly kind of joy has been is going to be made up for a, a full a fuller participation in it that uh, nothing creaturely can. You know, this would be where the kill joy comes in. You know, you think you think you know. Uh, you know, stealing that money and having big parties is, is going to make you happy. Well, you wait and see, you know, that kind of thing. But well, you, I, you, I, I wasn't thinking in those terms. I was thinking yeah, of, of, right. the, of the killjoy who says, ah, yeah, you're having a great birthday party because you're, you're happy that your kid is five years yeah. old. Well, that's nothing compared yeah. to the joy yeah. of experience and glory. And, and in a sense, that's true. But on the other sense, yeah. you know, the guy is almost like trying to be the killjoy, trying to yeah. kind of rob you of your joy. And yeah. Well, it's, there's a certain ingratitude in that as well, I think, because I do think it's not a it's a, not a reception of the the kind of drops of joy that God is supplying for us. I mean, uh, you know, James one seven, every good and perfect gift is from above, right? Um, and in there, you you have to be talking about good things and perfections that aren't complete yet. Um, they're things though that owe themselves to God. Our, our share in truth, our share in beauty, our share in goodness. Um, you know, coming down from the Father of Lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, yeah, God is the source of that that perfection of joy that, in which there is no alteration; it's complete. But God is also the Father of Lights, who is the source of all of our little shares in those things, and those should be received with gratitude. But I think this is where the qualification: we should not confuse that creaturely share with the end in itself. We shouldn't become, we shouldn't be seeking our joy merely in, you know, the, you know, beauty of, 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 you know, 
of of our wife as if that's the end game, right? As if as if that that beauty is also meant for a relation of communion that has its higher joy together in in union with God, right? So it, and so it, you know in that case it participates in a higher joy which allows it to be a continuous place of joy because it is actually not turning the other into an idol or limiting the openness of the other to receive everything from God to be more joyous. And I think so there is, there is this kind of sharing. And, and I think this inbreaking in the, in the text of the angels into this scene is you have a longing and a readying for this, this fuller joy, which salvation is, but it is the joy that heaven is opening up because what you're getting is this joyous choir of angels, right? Singing and, you know, this is where I was going to kind of move into to the kind of musical aspect is there is a sense in which our senses that you were just talking about as embodied creatures and Christ taking on human flesh and dwelling among us is also opening our senses to be able to listen in, if you will, into the heavens and share in something about them. The, you know, the glorious choir of angels, if you will, that we didn't have before. And though we may it may have been there, right? Our, our, that that veil had not been lifted, and so now I think what you begin to see is what early uh, theologians would call the new song that Christians have been given. Um, that's what you know Clement of Alexander and, and and different theologians talked about the way in which music itself now takes on a new contour, and we almost have this ability that our ears are being sanctified so that they can listen in on heaven. And our voices are being touched and cleansed and liberated so they can sing along with the he- all of the heavens and all of the earth. And so I think what you have going on just in that little text of joy in Luke is really uh, opening up the, the, the rich Christian vision of the connection of heaven and earth and a Christian participation in the heavenly on earth um, in ways I think that only the incarnation can help unpack you know, what it means. It's worth noting that when you go to the Psalms, very often when it talks about um, praise or thanksgiving or glorifying God, it, it immediately connects it to song. Yeah. You know, let the mountains sing for joy to the Lord yeah. for he comes to judge the earth. Yeah. Um, you know, so there there is a direct connection there. And Augustine, I think, summarized this really well when he said he who sings praise twice. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there, there's something about song, about music, that expresses things in a way that our normal way of expressing ourselves just doesn't work. This is why in musicals, whenever you get to an important point, they break into singing, you know, because yeah. it, it, it sort of heightens what's going on. And the same thing, ought, we, we ought to be in a musical, <laughs> I've often I've often thought it'd be awfully fun to be in a kind of real musical and the band strikes up, you know, the song just about the time that I need to to, to sing. <laughs> but uh that but I do think that this kind of gets at something that I've been playing with a little bit in the course of the show, this idea of whether uh we live in a world that's sort of devoid of uh divine uh presence or glory or one in which it's there and we just simply aren't equipped to see it. I think about Elisha 
you know, uh, when he, when he prays, uh, Lord, open his eyes, speaking of his servant. And then he opens and he sees, you know, that, that they're surrounded, that they're surrounded by the Lord's, uh, army, you know, the, the host of the Lord and that they really have nothing to fear. Um, that host had been there the entire time and remained unseen. And I, I kind of think that's the way, the way I, I, I think of, or that is the way I think of things. There is a, a song that the world is singing, the created order is singing, and it's, it's, it's uh, happening all the time. And there is an unending heavenly song that's occurring in the heavenly places. Uh, and I think that when we have those serendipitous moments, those revelatory events, those those insights into the meaning of things, you know, those those are apocalyptic. There's a there's a pulling back of a veil. It's it's something that we're being permitted to see. And I think that that joy that we're we're talking about is. You know, it's it's happening right now. Where it's all around us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there are, there are moments in which, by in terms of our capacity, we're able to to realize it in our in our minds, or just get some little sense of it. And I, I think this is where the significance of the incarnation comes yeah. in. Besides being the unique saving, you know, second person of the Trinity, and the joy of bringing heaven into to to tangibility, right? But it's the recognition as, as embodied creatures with that embodiedness as part of the good creaturely nature we have, right? It, even if it is on, on the scale of being, you know, kind of lower on that chain, if you will, it is not in this case something bad or to be rejected. It is actually something to be restored, redeemed, and brought up into that communion. And one of the things that Jeffrey Wainwright uh, wrote a book uh, for our salvation years ago, and he's talking about the embodied, you know, the significance of Christ's incarnation, where he talks about our need for the rectification of our senses, right? And God's gift of it. Um, And he said, of course, the embodiment belongs to our very nature as human beings. So it is natural that our creator would address us by way of our physical senses, right? Um, but our senses are affected by our fallen condition, which is expressed in the Apostle Paul's term, the flesh. But Athanasius describes our plight as a misdirection of the senses. Human beings rejected the contemplation of God and therefore seek God in, in the, na- the fallen world or the sensual world. And, and this is where you were saying, Chris, he's basically being cut off to the, to the heavens. So there needs to be this rectification of our senses. And there is this uh, old baptismal um, liturgy um, by St. Cyril of Jerusalem. And it's short, so I'll just read a couple of clips of it. But he's talking about this rectification that baptism sort of is initiating, that, you know, the, the bringing, you know, the washing and the, the being bodily uh, raised in, in, in Christ and sanctified. He says, first, you were anointed on the forehead so that you might lose the shame of Adam, our first transgressor, who everywhere bore with him, so that you might with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. So now you'll be able with your face to behold the Lord, right? Second Corinthians 3.18. Next, you were anointed on the ears that you might acquire ears which will hear those divine mysteries of which Isaiah said, the Lord has given me an ear to hear with. So it's just like we we it's there the choir of heavens and all that's there. We now need those ears. We need them sanctified and purified. Um, Isaiah fifty four. 
And again, the Lord said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then you were anointed on your nostrils so that you can receive the divine gift. We are the aroma of Christ of God among those being saved, 2 Corinthians 2.15. And then he goes through all the senses. But the way in which all those dimensions, which we usually see in, in liturgic, you know, our liturgies, the way in which we partake of word in hearing, the sanctification, um, and then the sacraments, right, um, where we taste and see, um, these dimensions of us are not, you know, yes, they're the stepping stone to that deeper soulful spiritual communion, but they're part of that. That's why the incarnation is, is so rich. It's a, it's a bringing us up into these divine mysteries. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, that passage in John, John chapter 1, which is all about the incarnation, as you said. Yeah. Uh, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, uh, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the flesh is the means by which... Yeah. This um, uh, glory is put on display. It's not right. yes. the thing that obscures it or obstructs it. That's yeah. that's what I that, I guess that's what I've been getting at the whole time. In a, you know, in a yeah. sense that that yeah. people, the people who have this um, strong dichotomy, if it's yeah. if it's bodily, it's not spiritual. Yeah, uh, yeah. It can't in some it can't in some way express spiritual realities. It's something we need to get away from so that we can be spiritual. Well, then yeah. I think you've missed the point of the incarnation and you're living beneath your, well, you, you're not, you're not enjoying the, the, the riches of your inheritance like you should as a Christian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that, and that, that's something that I've always sort of tried to point out to my evangelical friends that the tendency to, you know, you go to you go to church and you see the communion stuff on the table and you say, oh, it's communion Sunday. I'd forgotten. Uh, you, you treat it so casually. And I think the reason for that is that we don't really believe that physical elements can carry spiritual significance, yeah. which is why you default to sort of a, a simple memorial view. Yeah. Um, that I don't, I think that that is actually well below a biblical understanding, not just of the sacraments, but of the world. And it's really a product. It, it's, we don't normally think of it this way, but in a lot of ways, the Enlightenment is a resurrection of ancient Gnosticism turned on its head. Yeah. Uh, with this radical dichotomy between flesh and spirit, or between physical and spiritual, yeah. um, except the Enlightenment emphasizes the physical over the spiritual, and the Gnostics did it the other way yeah. around. But it's yeah. still, in a very real way, pulling in Gnostic metaphysics. And I think yeah. we've got a lot of that still in the Church. Yeah. yeah. I think there's actually a connection to totalitarianism here. This might seem like a stretch, but let me make the case. <laughs> I think when we affirm or we confess that there's a, a real presence in the sacrament, that in a way we're also uh, saying that there is real presence elsewhere. Um, for example, me or you. <laughs> so totalitarianism uh, denies the real presence, not merely or not simply, I should say, uh, in the Lord's Supper, but in human beings. Uh, we're treated as stimulus response mechanisms by totalitarianisms. Yeah. 
by totalitarians. So they don't they don't acknowledge that there's a spiritual reality that's present in uh, yeah. pe- the people who live in the under the totalitarian's rule or totalitarianism's yeah. rule. So it's this all kind of connects to some. Well, some well it's interesting because ways. totalitarian works when well it fills a vacuum when the you know classic Christian participatory metaphysics disappears. Why? Because participation is total. There is no place at which you can, you know, I remember Nicholas Lash had this great argue, uh, this article essay called The Impossibility of Atheism. And, and he was talking about when you understand what is involved with that, you'll realize there is no place for the atheist to go <laughs> because we're talking total, all things depend on God that aren't God, right? Um, and so because of that, there isn't anywhere for them to go. Nihil, nothing, nowhere. And so to 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 kind of you know kind of have a have a view in which God is removed, if if you could, um, first of all is is a nihilistic view, but it's one that would require a totalitarian. Something else now has to govern that 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 chaos now un, unleashed that abyss. You know, it's funny. I, I had a I, I made a tweet here the other day about atheism, and uh, to the effect that atheism can't create a world that even atheists would want to live in. Or something, something like that. And you know what? I've had some response from atheists, and none of them took issue with the point. <laughs> Essentially, they conceded the point. Uh, and the best they could do was say, well, you guys haven't done very good either. <laughs> that, we, that, can explain, we can explain why we haven't done good. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one of the things that, that's interesting on this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to revert to type here. We're going back to Reformation history. In France, the conflict between Catholics and Protestants was not over justification by faith. It's rather curious. There's a meeting called the Colloquy of Poissy where the Catholics told the Protestants, okay, drop your statement of faith, we'll correct it, and then we'll talk about it. And they didn't touch justification by faith. They didn't go there at all. So in France, that wasn't the issue. The issue was the sacrament. Yeah. The issue was transubstantiation very specifically. Yeah. And it's interesting, when you look at the re- anti-Protestant rhetoric, the Protestants are called anarchists. Mm. And this isn't just simply throwing a nasty word around at them. They meant something very specific uh, by this. There's a wonderful book uh, by Christopher Elwell, Elwell? Yeah, called The Body Broken. And mm. in that, what he does is he says, look, in, in 16th century, the the transubstantiated host in France was considered a metaphor for the embodiment of power in society. That is the ultimate embodiment of, of power in a physical object. It is God himself in the bread. Yeah. So they would do these Corpus Christi processions where you would start with the consecrated host and then you would go down every rank in society from the highest to lowest um, in these processions. The higher you were in society, the closer you were to the host. And what it provided was a picture of the way power viewed in an undifferentiated way, political power, economic power, spiritual power, it's all the same thing. Power flows from God through the host down through all the ranks in society. And that's a rather, I think, sharp contrast to the point you're making about totalitarianism. Well, yeah. That's, it also explains why they, they viewed the Huguenots who rejected transubstantiation as anarchists. You've destroyed yeah. the entire fabric of society. 
Yeah, and that, it's it's uh, worth remembering. We just had Hans Borsma on, and he was yeah. talking about how a hi- how hierarchy uh, yeah. didn't necessarily work that way in in the thinking of uh, Pseudo Dionysius of the Areopagite. You know? Sure, and this is peculiar to France. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, we can I, argue that the French were pretty peculiar, but th- this <laughs> is this is the way they they yeah. thought in, within within the country of France. Yeah, I'm actually. Well, yeah, just just quick here, I, I'll hand it over mm-hmm. to you. But uh, I, uh, I'm I'm currently leading a study of uh, uh, lectures in Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper, and he makes a really uh, strong case for uh, you know reformed thinking as being democratizing in this very sense. Um, you know, particularly as mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, in terms of it's the relationship of Calvinism to politics and to uh, the church and so forth that. Within Calvinism, uh, because of the emphasis on election, uh, that meant that uh, the the understanding was every individual believer had direct access to God, obviously through the Spirit in Christ. You know, you know, Spirit working in us to uh, you know address the Father through Christ, but that the Church, in a sense, was no longer sort of the the arbiter. In the sense that it had been, so you know, the image that came to my mind when I was, as I was reading Kuiper was, you know, you're, let's say you're, you know, in Sicily in 1452, and you want to open up a cheese shop. What do you do? You go to your priest and ask for his input and his blessing, and maybe you know uh, his prayers uh, before you make a move, because the church has that kind of control over legitimacy in society. Plus, of course, you want the blessing of, you know, in favor of God. Now, is that the way a typical burger in, say, uh, you know, Protestant countries thought? Is that the way um, uh, Dutch traders thought? Did they go to their pastor and ask for permission to start a new trade endeavor? No. <laughs> you know, the, the, these Calvinists, they just, I'm just going to go out and do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to do it for the glory of God, but I don't need my pastor's approval. <laughs> well, and then you get to the Great Awakening, yeah. where one of the most important um, uh, tracts written during the Great Awakening was uh, called On the Dangers of an Unconverted Clergy. Oh, yeah, sure. In which they made the, the author, I forgot who it was, is somebody uh, associated with David Brainerd, I believe, but not him. But in any event, the author argued that a plowboy who'd had a conversion experience was closer to God than a bishop who hadn't. (laughs) And what this does is it breaks down all kinds of hierarchies and actually ends up contributing to the American Revolution because it creates a mindset that says, king, no king, it doesn't matter. Right. But in a certain way... no, No different from the bishop who hasn't been converted, except in a political sense. But on the other hand, you can still see the point of this could lead to anarchy. In, mm-hmm. yeah. anyway. yep. Well, and it can it can lead to certain flattening of of reality. Is I mean, it, it's sort of well, we can see where it can go because we've ended up where it went. <laughs> 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 I, think, I don't think I have to say a lot more than that. We we see where it ended up. <laughs> um, but but the uh, I mean, I think you know back. Back before all that happened, uh, even before the uh, Catholic, uh, you know, uh, tying of of the um, the host, you know, the, the materialization of grace, as some would call it, in certain conceptions of Catholic 
um, transubstantiation was a more sacramental view in which it, we've, we've gone over it enough with the show. But it makes more sense of why you could actually get to that that same point in a in it without having to f- flatten everything the, in those ways. And it goes right back to the point that if there is truly, as we share in, you know, worship, word, and sacrament, and uh, in, in Christ, that there, the media, the media, the way in which all of creation is theophanic can in its own distinct way actually exhibit the glory of God as a distinct creature, and particular it is as God's creation. This makes sense then of why we're to offer our bodies, right? And our bodies is everything we do, our work, our speech, our vocation, everything, as living sacrifices, right? Um, Holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable, you know, logike latri, our reasonable worship, um, and so worship, you know, is, is very much tied to our offering our bodies, our whole, you know, our whole created self um, as living sacrifices. And of course, in that sense, it's living sacrifices that are sharing, of course, in the sacrifice that Christ is. It's, it's, bare, it's participating in all of its fruits. It's sacramental. And so you can see how society can be transformed when everything is corresponding to the created reality of of exhibiting the glory of God. So I think the reformers were aiming to in many in their better moments aiming to recapture some of that. Yeah. What's interesting about those verses is the juxtaposition of and in the English the English is really difficult here yeah. uh, how you translate this, but it's the juxtaposition of body yes. with logikon yeah, body with reason or a word yeah. associated with reason. Yeah, so it, it incorporates yeah. both the physical and the mental. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's one of my favorite passages uh, uh, in Romans, and one of the more frustrating ones because of how it gets brutalized in different translations. But there you have the body, the mind, and worship all tied together. The, yeah. the part that tends to get obscured is the mind. Uh, people yeah. now the King James, uh, to its credit, uh, calls it reasonable worship, reasonable service. Yeah, yeah reasonable, reasonable service. service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, yeah. that I think is a, is pretty good. I mean, it, it yeah. captures that that intellectual component there with logicon. And it's interesting because it will it, it, this you know verse connects later with First Corinthians six nineteen that our bodies become the temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so again, this is something very similar, the theophanic nature of, of our embodied. And so I think with the incarnation and the, the restitution of our senses, right? Um, not just here, come listen, you know, come in here, but taste and see word and sacrament um, are the way in which we are becoming as, you know, I think Hans Boroma put it very well. It's, it was the actual body of Christ that becomes that living bread and sacrifice. It was the focus on the people of God that were the place where the presence of Christ and God is manifest in the world, rather than just on the the focus on the host. And so that's where we become this one body. Yeah, and that's so clear in 1 Corinthians 11. I mean, it's hard uh, to sort of shoehorn transubstantiation into First Corinthians 11. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the whole conversation is about the church <laughs> and yeah. the body yeah. and how people are 
overlooking each other or snubbing each other or not caring for each other at the, at the love feast. And, and, you know, uh, the discerning of the body is clearly connecting to that, not whether or not you're able to sort of in faith, say the host has been transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. But at the same time, (laughs) you also have the statement is not the bread that we break participation sure. yeah. or koinonia with the body of Christ is not the cup of blessing, which we bless participation or koinonia with the blood of Christ. So I yeah. think, well, I think you have to do it on multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. There, sure. There's a distinct me- me- means the tasting and seeing uh, of, of Christ's presence. But it's, I think it's the fact that, you know, the consequence of that is the, is the full, you know, I think the fuller, the fuller picture that we become, you know, one faith, one bo- one baptism, one people of God. And similarly, the church, when it renewed music, and I know we've got to wrap up here, but the church, the church, and uh, we'll do this. I, I want to do a lot more music in this coming year, next coming year. But um, the church talks a lot about the oneness of voice. Um, and this will become something, the unity of the church's song. And that's not, you know, uh, a crushing homogeneity. It's actually... All, it's sort of like Tolkien's, you know, Silmarillion. It's the way in which these these various and distinct uh, voices harmonize into this unity grounded and centered in the joy of God, and the way in which lament and and thanks and and joy are something of sharing in that that bliss of the the heavens to which you know glory to God in the highest. You know, um, yeah. This ties in nicely to something that I heard. Um Ken Myers, our friend Ken Myers from Mars Hill Audio, say one time, uh, he noted that Christianity is unique in you know this particular respect concerning music. Because if you look at the religions of the world, you have you know music present throughout the different religions of the world. But Christianity is unique insofar as it seems to be the place where polyphony uh, is is born. Uh, you don't yeah. have polyphony. In Islam, you don't have polyphony. In uh, Judaism, you, you don't have it. In Buddhism, you know, you've got chanting. Um, yeah. You've got everybody saying the exact same thing, the exact same way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you have polyphony in Christianity. You know, when I was in Mongolia at one point, we went to a Buddhist temple, um, and you know where the monks were were chanting. It was melodic. You know, you could hear it. But every now and then, what uh, one of the guys in our group called the worship band broke in. (laughs) And um, (laughs) it was just this blast of noise. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know that I I would be competent even to figure out what kind of a cluster they were playing (laughs) um, in terms of 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 the 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 incredible dissonance and everything else. And it was just this blast of sound. Well, well, they're think, busy doing their chanting. Well, I think it says something about their ontology. It says something about the way they think about the world. But you think about this. Where else is there in the history of the world anything like a symphony? I mean, like, like a symphony orchestra. Uh, yeah. It's absolutely, uh, I think, unparalleled. Is, yeah. uh, there's nothing else out there like that. Well, and I, you think what you get is that rich combination of Christianity taking that the the strong. Well, when Christianity moves out of it moves into the Hellenic world more fully, it really found value in those those cosmological those ordered cosmologies of of Plato and and different figures, 
where they saw that at the heart of all creation is an order that manifests the intelligibility of God. And so Christians transformed this into a distinct Christian vision. You, um, you know, Boethius, we talked about before later, we'll talk about, you know, kind of three aspects of music. And this is really summing up this tradition. You've got the musica mundana, right? The order and harmony of the universe. And then the musical musica humana is the order and harmony of the human person as a microcosm of, of the universe. And the emphasis is, is really on the way in which the music of one's life, if you will, um, is, you know, kind of the virtuous person. And then you have finally kind of musica instrumana, right? The way in which sound and music are somehow to foster and exhibit this kind of balance and order that we have in us. So if you have music that is chaotic, it describes very much a human being that is chaotic, which therefore talks about them being out of sync. Well, the Christian emphasis comes in, especially with Clement and different figures, and talks about the way in which it, it is not the musica whom. Um, Mundana, the order of the cosmos that is primary, it's actually humans made in the image of God to which the ordering of the universe is, is actually, in, in a way, if you will, uh, uh, you know, a large-scale um, exhibition of what the human being is. And, of course, the human being in its most ordered sense is the image of the Word of God who becomes incarnate, the fully, you know, we're back to a full Christian vision. And this really reshapes the way in which music um, as as oriented towards Christ and the unity of the people and the body. And so I don't even think we've really unpacked fully um, just how significant music has been transformed by that the Christian inheritance and contribution. Yeah, that's great stuff. Well, we should wrap it up here. Um, I think, uh, you know, just as, as we're concluding, uh, we uh, have a lot of things to be grateful for as uh, uh, a podcast. Um, we've been talking about Christmas right now. And of course, this is a time of year where many Christians around the world are thinking about what we've just been discussing, the incarnation. And I think it's, it's good. It's a good time for us to, to be, uh, uh, aware of how much we've been given as a, as a, you know, a podcast. I, we just got the, uh, mm. the figures, uh, from our, from one of our podcasting platforms and uh, we're in 59 different countries. Wow. And uh, this is the order of the list of the audience. So obviously, the United States is where the, the largest portion of our audience uh, resides. Then Canada, that makes sense. Then the United Kingdom. But fourth, surprise me, Sweden. So if you're out there listening yeah. uh, to us in Sweden, let us know. <laughs> it just, it just got fascinating. And then I think after that was Australia. But the, the fact that, you know, you have these... These four English-speaking yeah. countries made sense, but then you had inserted Sweden, <laughs> and not as number five, but as number four. I yeah. thought that was something to fascinating, but also something to be grateful for. Yeah, and uh, we're grateful that you continue to listen. You've made it all the way to the end of another another show. We're grateful to all the folks who support the show through the Fight Laugh Feet uh, Feast Network and through our Patreon account and in, in other ways. And uh, we're hopeful that uh, as we go ahead into the future, that the show will continue to grow. We, uh, according to uh, this particular podcast platform, we doubled in size in terms of our audience this past year. And uh, so there's just a lot of things that we are grateful for. So thanks a lot, everyone, for your support of the show. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.